Good evening. What a beautiful, splendid evening it is. It was hard to come inside the hall. It's so still and grace-filled out there. It's pretty grace-filled in here too. (laughs) Just in a different way. So I'm going to start with a poem from Hafez may speak to your experience here. How's the sound? Are we okay? A little louder. Yeah, a little louder. How's the sound now? Is that good? Great. I have learned so much. I have learned so much that I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew. The truth has shared so much of itself with me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even pure soul. Love has befriended Hafez so completely, it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. So, if I had a wish for this training... (laughs) that you've learned so much in so many different ways that you can no longer call yourself by any label or any form of identification. So I read that poem because that's what I want to speak to tonight is the process of selfing, the process of self-identification, what the Buddha called anatta, the teachings of not-self, which are spoken to in various ways in different traditions. I'm going to present Buddhist perspectives on this mysterious part of our nature, the most mysterious part, perhaps. That which we know most well, we're most familiar with, is ourselves. And yet, at the same time, the most difficult to fathom, the difficult, most difficult to pinpoint and say, yep, that's me. If we ask you to take a look, which we do all the time, and we point to it in different ways in the meditation, to say, who is this? Who am I? What is this thing called life, called being human, human being, sitting, awareness, moving, dancing, meditating. What is this form that comes into being, stays around for a while, looks pretty weird for a while, and then passes away? Do we know who we are? Do you know who you are? On one level you say, of course I know who I am. I've lived with myself for for ages. But when we take a closer look, what is this thing called me, called self, called I? I'm going to read something else um, which sort of pertains to this. It's a little like what Richard was pointing to um, when referring to, as we've done in different ways, to how we feel, and I pointed to in the first night, 
this uh, dis-ease, this existential dis-ease and discomfort, that there's something not quite right because we're, as, we, as we disconnect or misunderstand our true nature, there's no wonder we feel out of sorts. And there's something we think we're not getting, and it's true, we're not. So this is from R.D. Lang. He says, he writes, the psychologist, he says, there is something I don't know that I'm supposed to know. There is something I don't know that I'm supposed to know. Does that sound familiar around ourselves? I'm supposed to know myself. I don't know what it is I don't know, yet I'm supposed to know, and I feel I look stupid if I seem to both not know it and not know what it is I don't know. Therefore, I pretend to know it. Anybody feel like they move through life pretending they know? This is nerve-wracking, since I don't know what I must pretend to know. Therefore, I pretend to know everything. I feel you know what I'm supposed to know, but you can't tell me what it is because you don't know that I don't know what it is. You may know what I don't know, but not that I don't know it, so I can't tell you. So you will have to tell me everything. So over the time here in our practice, we are exploring this experientially, not philosophically, not intellectually, but through our direct experience, through awareness, through movement, to come to a direct realization of this understanding. And the Buddha said that his teachings were ahipasiko, they're an invitation to come and see, to take a look not dogma, not telling you how it is, but to invite you into your, into your own inquiry, into this very subtle aspect, and not so subtle aspect of our experience. And he refused to take a philosophical view. So there was a, a story of a young wanderer, I don't know about young, but he was a wanderer, a seeker, and many people would come and ask and challenge the Buddha about his teaching called Vachagota, this particular person. And he said to the Buddha, is there a self? Because obviously you probably heard about the Buddha's teaching on not-self. Is there a self? And the Buddha remained silent. And the man said, Vachagota said, well, is, is there not a self? And again, the Buddha remained silent. And the man shook his head and frustrated and left. And Ananda, the Buddha's trusty attendant, uh, said, what's up? How come you didn't, you know, you're renowned for these long discourses on everything, including the nature of self. How come you didn't answer him? Simple question. Seemed like a nice guy. Um, And the Buddha said, if I'd answered yes, it would have led to one holding of a position of speculative views and attachments. And if I'd said no, it would have led to a whole other grasping in a philosophical position, which wouldn't serve the person, just like it wouldn't serve any of us to be told yes or no. It behooves us, it serves us to look directly. Is there a self? Is there not a self? What is this, what is this teaching pointing to?
So why do we even bother to look at this? Most people don't even care. They're quite happily thinking they know themselves or not and going about their merry old way. The Buddha said this was the fundamental cause of suffering, was the misunderstanding and the attachment at the construct of self that we build. The quote that was quoted the other day, the house builder, oh house builder, I see you, your, your, your ridge pole has been shattered, your rafters have been broken. The Buddha saw through this house builder, this construct of self, and saw this as the fundamental cause of our suffering that underlies all the things that we've been talking about. The way we misapprehend, the way that we grasp, the way that we cling, the way that we want to check out. So it's interesting that this, this, this inquiry is, is, is becoming more of a, uh, a mainstream concern, particularly with the development in neuroscience and the understanding of the brain. And researchers um, done a lot of different research on this particular issue of where the agent is, the agent behind action. Where is the do? Where is the self in the brain? Where is it located, this functioning, this thing called I? Where does it exist? Time magazine, this is many years ago now, um, did a study and then they collated a lot of the studies around this particular research. And the, and the summary was after the more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain and that simply does not exist. That's Time magazine. Pretty dharmic for Time magazine, don't you think? So I'm going to look at this, this I'm going to explore this theme through two angles, one through the the doorway of impermanence, and the one through the doorway of the teaching on the five skandhas, the five aggregates, five components that make up this mind-body existence. So I think one of the easiest ways to understand, to have a sense of this, of the composite nature of the self, is by seeing its changing nature. Often we, when we refer to ourselves, me, I, this is who I am. This, there's some mm, deeply held belief of an unchanging reality. And that's what the Buddha's questioning us and pointing us to investigate. So to just to take a look at your experience today or over the week, maybe just, just today, we can take the last hour. the different senses of self that you took birth in today. You woke up in a certain way. Maybe you woke up with dread. Oh God, it's five o'clock. You you woke up as as the dreading one, as the one who was dragging the heels to the Dharma hall. Or maybe you woke up the enthusiastic one because you couldn't wait to do self-practice. It's self-practice. Finally, I get to practice on my own. Yes. Or you get to lunch and it's the food that you most hate in the world and you become the aggressive, resistant, aversive, complaining one. 
But then you realize someone's left you some cookies or some chocolate somewhere and you become the happy one. Yeah? And on it goes through the day, these different identities we get born into. And we, have, we, eat, we have seconds of lunch because we like it so much and we feel bad about ourselves. Oh no, I, I really picked out. And we, we, we sloth through the afternoon, barely knowing what was being taught. We take birth as the, as the guilty one, or as the greedy one, or as the regretting one. Does that sound familiar, these different selves that we take birth into? It particularly happens on retreat in the, uh, I'm loving it, I'm loving being here. This is the best thing that ever happened. I wish this retreat was three months long. Right? That's, that's during a good meditation. Right? And then the next meditation, which is really awful because your concentration has collapsed because that's the nature of concentration. It ebbs and flows and you take birth in the, oh God, I'm sick of this retreat. I can't wait for this to be over. When, how long, when can we break silence? Does that sound familiar? Right? The ebbs and flows and that's just in, you know, in two sittings. So the times we want to live here, we want to move into Spirit Rock, and other times we want to just leave yesterday. Right? What is that? What is that changing nature of self? Where is the stability in that? And as we ground in awareness like we do in the meditation, as I was pointing to this morning in the Big Mind meditation, we can, we can, we can settle back in awareness and see these selves coming and going. And we don't take them so seriously, we hold them lightly. We say, oh yes, there's the complaining one, and there's the ecstatic one, and there's the I'm a great yogi one, and there's the deficient empty one. And we see they're just passing shows, like everything else is passing in this stream of consciousness. And so we don't get so identified because there's more residing, as it were, in awareness that's knowing all of these. The Buddha said, which is your true self? The self of yesterday, that of today, or that of tomorrow, for whose preservation you clamor? Which is your true self? He also said, that which is transitory, is it possible to say it is I or mine or myself? That which is changing. How do we attach an I to that which is changing so much? Where is the self that has continuity? Are you this, when you look at photos of you as an infant, as a baby, as a four-year-old, is that you? Are you the same person that arrived here on retreat all tired and frustrated with life and traveling and is that the same you? When you go get your hair cut and you know this this lovely hair that we tend to and we nurture and then we get it cut off and it's on the floor of the hairdressers, do we go, oh that's me, I'll take it home, you know no, we go, ugh, and we kind of get a little repulsed, just like when we cut our fingernails that we've spent so long manicuring and tending, and then it becomes, oh, that's not me. So what happened? 
that was lovingly you and suddenly it's not you. Or the dust, you know the dust that we see everywhere? You know whether the dust in is 70% human skin? It's kind of gross, I know, but it's true. Do we go, you know, when we're, when we're wiping down the tables at home, you know, and dusting the show, oh, there's me, you know, just <laughs> love, lovingly put it in a box. <laughs> Over a lifetime, we shed 105 pounds of skin. That would be a big old dust pile that we're <laughs> collecting. <laughs> the same when we wake up in the morning. Richard was pointing to this in a, in a slightly different way. When we wake up in the morning, I, I really like to do an inquiry at this time. It could be in the middle of the night also. I prefer doing it in the morning. When we wake up, and as I often do now, I have no idea where I am. And I look up and just, oh, oh interesting roof. And there's a certain kind of relaxed, spacious, slightly foggy, but ease, great ease in the body-mind. Because the... The, the, the egoic consciousness hasn't, the, the, the egoic mechanisms of doing haven't kicked into gear. And so there's kind of a spaciousness, there's a sense of merge, like, oh, it's just relaxation. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I'm at spirit, well, oh, what time is it? Did I miss the sit? Oh no, was I supposed to be leading the sit this morning? And what about, and then the whole list of to-dos and the burden of today comes in, and our world shrinks from that spaciousness to sudden constriction and self-referencing and uh, often concurrent uh, pain or sudden deflation. Does that sound familiar? Recognize that? Pay attention when you wake up tomorrow morning before the mental mechanisms have really taken root. Also, so in this exploration of the process of selfing, to think of it more as a verb than a noun, it's useful, to notice the coming, to notice the presence and the absence. So the Buddha often talked about noticing the presence of something, like the presence of grasping or aversion, and noticing when the heart-mind is absent of these states. Similarly, to notice when the sense of self, the self-referencing, self-identification is quiet, soft, dissolved, absent. Like right now in this moment. What's the quality of selfing in relationship to this talk, in relationship to listening? There's a strong sense of, I'm here, Mark's over there, I'm liking this, I'm not liking this, I agree with this, I don't agree with this. Or is there just hearing, sound, space, coming and going in awareness, nobody home, happily? So for myself, as you may know, I, I spend a lot of time in nature. I do, I do a lot of my teaching and my practice in nature. Partly because the access to this particular teaching, I think, is the most easy, easiest. When we step out into nature, is why I had a hard time coming in this evening. <laughs> There's certain times of the day when there's just the, there's a quality of presence that invites us into a great ease. Dawn, dusk, good examples. 
where we immerse ourselves in an environment where the habit of selfing is not predominant. So selfing is a human phenomena. The natural world, as far as we know, isn't caught up in egoic consciousness, identity. So we step out into the woods, into the hills, and if we're alone, particularly, there's a, there's a certain softening and relaxing of the sense of self because we're not around a whole lot of other selves comparing and judging and fixing and controlling all the things that we're supposed to have renounced the other day. And something softens. Do you understand what I'm... I imagine I mean, that's why we have Spirit Rock where it is because it, the access to nature supports this, this sense of self softening and dissolve. We see the permeability of it. And maybe you notice you're out doing your walking practice in the hills or in these lanes out here and you're just at one with your steps, the trees, the sounds, the crickets. Just quiet, nobody home, nobody doing anything special. And then you hear some people walking towards you. And suddenly that sense of self returns. Who are they? What do they want? Are they safe? Am I, am I safe? Are they yogis? Right? That sense of self returns. And then maybe they, and they come onto your walking path and that sense of self really returns. This is my walking path. This is not your walking path. And we get territorial. We start issuing passports across our walking paths. <laughs> and then the person passes and then something relaxes again. So pay attention to that re-arising and passing. Freedom allows for the whole movement. So this teaching on self or not self is not saying there's no self. It's to say, take a look at the self and allow, freedom allows for the movement of all of it. Self, not self, the coalescing, the attachment, the identification, the relaxing, the releasing, the selflessness. So one of my favorite Chinese poems, nature poems by Li Po, he says, he writes, the birds have vanished into the sky and the last, rema- the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. The birds have vanished into the sky. The last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, you and I, spirit rock and I, until only the mountain remains. Yeah, so we get a real beautiful taste of that. And you know that from your experience. Where there's just, just the sound remains, like this morning maybe. Just the sound of the crickets and the cicadas. I found this great translation of this poem online. It's one of those things where you where you ask us you know don't believe everything you read especially on the web here's that here's another translation of it with someone who clearly doesn't have a an understanding of this teaching of, of anatta all the birds have flown up and gone a lonely cloud floats leisurely by 
We never tire of looking at each other, only the mountain and me. Isn't that great? <laughs> Do you see how it completely misses the point? We never tire of looking at each other, just me and the mountain, it's so cool. <laughs> Or we're hanging out by an oak tree, these beautiful oak trees out here, or the madrones up on the other hill. And the madrone and the oaks and the bays, they're just being themselves. They're not like, well, I am the coolest kick-ass oak tree on this mountain, you better believe it, I am. No, they're just being, being oak, they're being, they're treeing. They're oaking. see I'm going to have way too many things to say here. So we notice this at other times. Maybe you're doing your walking practice and you're in those moments where there's, there's full congruence, full immersion in the moment. You know, those, those delicious moments that come conditioned by the, by the steadiness of your practice and, and, and a certain amount of grace and you place your foot on the earth and that's all there is. There's nothing else but placing. Everything else falls away. There's just contact, skin caressing the earth. No self, no problem, just touching. Yeah? Or you can notice this in your asana practice. You're in a certain pose and it's just that movement of the body or the stillness of the body. And there's no, how am I looking? How does this? There's just being in the pose. And what's interesting about those moments is the quality of peace, the absence of agitation, the absence of, of comparing, the absence of conceit the absence of restlessness, right? This peace that we're all longing for, which is deeper than the happiness that we seek, is available in any moment. One of my teachers in India, Punjaji, used to say, don't go looking to the graveyard of the past. Don't go looking to the graveyard of the past. Don't look to the I thought that claims experience as me or mine. But see what's true right here in this moment. Who are you in this moment when you don't look to the past, to the mind, to thought for reference? Right now, right here. What's here? The silence, the sounds. There's form, there's color, light. So the Buddha put it in this way in a, in a famous teaching to Bahia. When Bahia asked the Buddha to give him the essence of his teaching because he was in a hurry, uh, kind of like we are, give us the essence of the teaching. I don't have time for a long discourse. Give me the one minute download. And the Buddha said, okay, 
You want it? Here it is. So listen up. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the sensing of the body, just the sensing. In the cognized, in the thought, just the cognized. Very simple. When you see that there is only seeing in the seeing, hearing in the hearing, sensing in the sensing, cognizing in the cognizing, you will understand that there is no here, nor there, nor in between. This is the end of suffering. When there's no referencing of self here or there, no separation, no division, just the process, the movement of life, sounds, form, sensations, come and going, just like in the meditation today. Very simple, accessible, direct, immediate. So, so the Buddha talked about the, the, this thing called human being. Uh, he dissected it into five categories. Form, body, feeling, perceptions, mental processes, and consciousness. That was one way of understanding this process. He also dissected it many other different ways using the, the, the four elements. And he gave this teaching as a way to, to see if we could not solidify this mass of changing processes into a single thing called me. Because what we call me, I, is just made up of this dance of life, this movement, this process, thoughts, feeling. When you pay attention in your meditation, you see, what am I in this moment? Well, it depends on which moment. You know, there's just this flurry, right, of thoughts, of feelings, sensations, of moments, of images, of expansion, contraction, pleasure, sadness, movement, stillness, right? Just constant, ceaseless. So ceaseless it's exhausting sometimes, isn't it? You, you want it just to come to stillness. So he, he pointed to these five things saying, these are the places that we can get identified and misperceive ourselves in them. So the first and foremost is the body, the most obvious, solid, accessible, available uh, thing that we identify with as who we are. Who am I? Look in the mirror in the morning. That's me. You know? Who are you? I'm, you know, we point ourselves. I'm, this is me. Nasruddin, the crazy wisdom Sufi teacher, goes into a bank and needs to cash a check. And the teller says, oh, I, I need to see some ID. And he's looking in his pockets, can't find anything. And he pulls out a mirror. Oh, that's me. 
That's what we do. We look in them every morning. There I am. What's wonderful about being on retreat, what's wonderful about wilderness retreats that I do, is you don't get to see a mirror for maybe a week or 10 days. It's fabulous. And then you come back and you look in the mirror and you go, that has so little relationship to my inner experience. We can taste that sometimes on which we look at them and we're like, who's that? <laughs> like, what's this? Like, when we, you know, we close our eyes and look at the inner experience, there's no body, there's no legs and arms, there's just sensations in space. It's formless, we're dissolved at times. This mystery of the body that we have so little uh, control over so one of the, one of the, the pointers the Buddha said, um, how, can that be, how can that be which we have so little control over? How can I call that myself? If, if, we, call this, if we call this body myself, then I would say to it, don't get sick. And it wouldn't get sick. Don't get old. Don't get achy and pain tired. Right? The body has a life of its own. We're made up of a hundred trillion cells each of those cells performing a couple of actions every moment. So that's a lot more trillion things happening in each moment. 100 billion blood cells will be created this day. 100 billion. In this next sentence, 50,000 cells will die and the next 50,000, they'll be reborn. Well, they won't be reborn, but other cells will be, will be given birth. It's a lot of work you're doing. No wonder you're tired at the end of the day. Right? And then the org, everything replaces itself. The liver replaces itself after five weeks. You have a new liver. These eyebrows every three to five months. Stomach lining every five weeks. the bones every few years, I forget exactly. We're constantly replicating ourselves, remaking ourselves. All it's happening by itself. So, one way to understand this teaching is to say, if we identify with ourselves as who we are, as our body, it's really just a limitation. It's a constriction of the truth. It's confining of the vastness and the complexity of who we are. So another place we, ta- we identify is, is our feelings. The second scandal, Vedana, but I'm going to extrapolate to include in feelings. We very much identify with our feelings as who we are. I'm an angry person, I'm a happy person, I'm a sad person. What was beautiful in the Yoga Nidra teaching that Richard was offering was holding both, holding the polarities. Well, what if I hold both? What if I hold the anger and the peace or the fear and the calm? How, what does that do to the identity? It, it sort of dissolves the duality. There's a license plate on a car in, in, down the road in San Geronimo that I used to notice that reads, the number one loser. Someone's taken birth in a very painful identity. 
we take birth, we, we, we believe these things to be who we are. I'm not sure if I read this um, the last time, but I'll read it again because it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a, a meditation pastime that we get into. The different ways that we create suffering for ourselves through our emotional and mental uh, uh, habits and attachments. It's called a checklist of feeling pathetic. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Anybody done that on the retreats thus far? Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Popular meditation pastime. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint, especially with people who share your last family name. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. The cartoon... This woman's going to compliment, hey, you look great. Don't patronize me. It's the thought bubble. (laughs) Resign yourself from believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. That's another very painful way we take birth. An emotion comes, we wake up in the morning all sad, all melancholic, all depressed, and we go, oh no, it's back. This is going to be, this is the rest of my retreat. We believe, don't we believe in the reality? We, we forget about impermanence. Some difficult emotion comes, and we go, oh no, it's here, it's back, and I'm doomed. And we forget, just in the same way we, 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 we grasp onto, oh, the delight, you know, the, we enjoy the beauty, and then we think, oh great, it's going to be a cool retreat from now on. <coughs> right? And we just, and we take birth, and we forget. And then we cling, and then we suffer. So the third way we um, misperceive ourselves is through the doorway of perception. Very, a very strong place that we identify in the belief that our perception is how it is. Our self-perception is true. Our perception of reality is true. There's this great line from Zen Korean Zen master Bankai who said, don't side with yourself. Don't side with yourself. We always side with ourselves because we're identified with our perception as true. It's how wars arise. It's how racism arises. It's how violence and hatred arises because we believe in our perception to be true, which is often distorted. The Buddha said, that which we conceive is ever other than is so. That which we conceive We don't see clearly. We're identified with our perception. Listen to the arguments you're having in your mind in meditation. Whose side are you on? Who's right? (laughs) Really the other person is right. Identified with this. The one who knows, the one who's right. The fourth area of, uh, the fourth aggregate, the aggregate of uh, mental processes, thoughts, mind states. This is really where we most, uh, we, we seem to be most identified in a way with our thoughts, with our ideas, with our beliefs, with our concepts. 
The Buddha said, mind is the forerunner of all things. With our thoughts, we make the world. We create the world. We create ourselves. We create each other. How many stories have you had about the 90 people on this retreat? And believe them to be true. Oh, I know what that person's like. I can just tell by the way they do their their yoga practice. Or the way their clothes they're wearing. Or the way they do walking. Or the way they eat. You know, I can just tell. You know. And then we believe that to be true. We have no idea. Someone's streaming tears in the meditation. And we put a whole story around it. To be true. Who knows? It could be bliss. It could be sadness. It could be longing. It could be emptiness. Who knows? So, but, and as I said earlier, to pay attention to the I thought. The I thought that claims experience. Our experience is unfolding effortlessly, organically, spontaneously, out of conditions, moment by moment. And then the I thought arises, I'm having this experience. Sensations in the knee, which might be burning, stabbing, piercing. My knee, I am having knee pain. It's a very different experience when we, when we add that concept. My knee, my pain. Yeah. Do you feel a difference? Just sensations coming and going and awareness. What we most notice when we're sitting is this self-referencing thought process. Who are the thoughts mostly about? Are they mostly about all the altruistic ways you can help the world? No, they're about ourselves. They're about me and my life and my stories and my fears and my hopes and what's for dinner and my room and my roommate and everything else. The common, the common, common denominator is me. The Buddha called it Sakya Diddy. This referencing, this self, I making, my making, ahamkara, mahamkara. The way the mind constantly preoccupies itself, keeps itself busy, keeps itself in existence by thinking about itself and our lives and our plans and our worries and all that. So we notice this in meditation, we're simply following our breath or on our mat, just in the flow of our vinyasa practice. And then the eye eye thought arises, wow, look look at this meditation, it's really going well. I'm really concentrated. I'm really getting this down. I think I could teach this. I think I'm going to become a meditation teacher. This is really cool. I think I could be good at that. And you start, you know, making, writing books and CDs and, you know, people, well, I'll get get to that in a moment. No, I'll say it now. So, because it's the same process, it, it's, it's, it's the process of papancha, the process of proliferation, based on, a certain, based on certain kinds of sense experience, based on desire or aversion or views or sense of self, the mind proliferates, associates, 
It's the same thing when we're walking. Walking up and down, we're walking really in slow and in the zone, and then the, the thought comes, looking good, looking really mindful. I hope people are noticing this is really... The eye thought has arisen, added to the experience, and then what does it do? It takes you out of the experience, into your head, into conceit, into comparing, into suffering, is what's important to to realize. So these different kinds of apancha, I really, won't really go into this teaching because it's a whole teaching itself. But when it's when there's a pleasurable experience, the the proliferation takes the form of grasping. So somebody on a retreat here it was it was a yoga retreat, yoga meditation retreat. They're having such a great time. They spent the whole retreat fantasizing about building their own retreat center. Right? Or if it's if it's unpleasant, if it, if there's aversion. The proliferation, the proliferation might be, oh, if I was teaching this retreat, like if I was running the schedule, and if I was cooking the food, right? or if it's coming out of a view, a certain view about ourselves or something else, the view might be something is happening in our practice, and the view might be, uh, this shouldn't be happening. I should have worked through this already. I should be further along in my spiritual development. Has anybody had that thought? I should be further along in my practice. It's such a, it's such a setup for suffering. How could I be further along than where I am? It's completely impossible. Except the mind that fabricates a past and a reality that could be different than it was. Punjaji used to say, don't let a single thought land anywhere. It's one of my favorite lines in spiritual literature. Don't let a single thought take root. And the last type of pancha, the manapa pancha, that just proliferates around ourselves. that's self-referencing. We walk through the door, somebody doesn't hold the door open for us, and the thought arises, oh, they don't like me. <laughs> we go down to dinner, they've run out of green beans, it, I'm, I'm, it's, it always happens to me. I'm always, I'm always left out. People just don't consider me. You know, you walk past a teacher after you've taken a hike in the hills. Oh no, they know. They know I slacked off during the walking. <laughs> Who knows where anybody else is in their own world, in their own papancha, probably. But we self-reference, and all of these things cause mild or strong degrees of suffering. That's, the, that's why we look to see and then to disengage, to disidentify, to see. It's just another passing appearance in the mind, in awareness. To the last um, aggregate is the aggregate of consciousness. It's the last bastion of where the I thought arises, where identification happens. Oh, well, I'm not my body, I'm not my emotions, and, but I'm the awareness. Awareness is me. I am, the, I am the witness. I am the watcher. I am the observer. It's another way we identify. So as Joseph Goldstein likes to say, to make the note, things are being known, sounds, sights, feelings, thoughts, things being known, known by what? Simply arising and passing in awareness. Be the knowing, not the conditions that are known. Be the knowing, not the conditions, not the knowing. Which doesn't mean to identify 
but to simply reside in that awareness that's the nature of your mind. Which means you don't have to get rid of anything, don't have to obstruct or reject, to simply see, feel, know the passing show. So in another place that the Buddha was asked to summarize his teachings, um, in one line, someone was even more impatient, <laughs> he said, Sabe Dhamma Nalam Abhinavasaya. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever in this phenomenal world, in this mind, body, heart, spirit, awareness, is to be clung to as I or mine, is to be identified with as me. We see it's just the process of life moving, living, breathing itself, dancing itself. He also said, he who has given up papancha, this proliferation, this eye-making and mind-making, has found the bliss of nirvana, the supreme peace. So again, I want to point you back to the peace that arises when the self, when there's, when, when there's a, the relaxing of the self-identification when the sense of self has softened or dissolved. To notice the peace that's here right now, even. So I've been exploring this, this inquiry through the wisdom door. There's many ways to, to understand self and selflessness, anatta. I've been using the lens of mindfulness, of inquiry. It could also be explored through devotion, through love, through compassion, through service. There are many different ways to explore. This is going through the door of inquiry, of emptiness. And in that emptiness, realizing the fullness, the non-separateness. So I want to close with a couple of quotes. Um, one by uh, the poet Juan Jimenez, uh, called I Am Not I, which is poetically speaking to many of the things I've been saying. He says, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and whom at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I am not, the one who remains standing when I die. I am not I. This is from the Sagadatta Maharaj. I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You may give it any name you like. Love says I am nothing. Wisdom, that doesn't read right. Wisdom says I am nothing. Love says, I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. 
Since at any point of time and space, I can be both the subject and object of experience, I express it by saying that I am both and neither and beyond both. So let's sit for a moment. So I'll do this last exercise with you, um, just for the fun of it. So I'm going to say a bunch of words, and then I'll ask you to remove a word each time I say the sentence. So the phrase that I'll use is, I am a meditator sitting here. I am a meditator sitting here. So just reflect on that word, and those words, that experience. I am a meditator sitting here. I'll take off the last word. I am a meditator sitting. I am a meditator. I am. Now remove the eye. Time for walking. Enjoy this beautiful night air. If the bell ringer could ring the bell at 8.45. Thank you. <laughs> 